Today's A Slice of Medieval, we have a special guest again, and we're leaning towards my side of history today in that we're doing historical fact rather than historical fiction with non-fiction author Darren Baker joining us. Darren was born in America and now lives in the Czech Republic, and his area of interest is the 13th century in particular. He's written biographies of both Henry III and Simon de Montfort and the wives in a dual biography called The Two Eleanors, which was absolutely fantastic. His last book was even on Henry III's brother, Richard of Cornwall. So Darren knows this era. And Derek and I were talking about Simon de Montfort and neither of us know too much about him. So I said, why don't we get Darren on and ask him to tell us about Henry III and Simon de Montfort and their relationship. So First of all, Darren, welcome and thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. <laughs> nice to be here. Can you give us a brief background of Henry III and Simon de Montfort and your reason behind writing their biographies? It's not often you find one person writing about the protagonists on both sides of a conflict. Yeah, well, that wasn't my original intention. I, I first became acquainted with both men in a book called The Magnificent Century, which was a series on the Plantagenet family by uh, a Canadian-American his, uh, historian named Thomas Costain. And in it, he portrayed Simon as a heroic figure, the founder of parliament who saves England from the grips of a, of a weak and misguided king. I later learned that portrayals like this of both Simon and Henry are completely misinformed. But Simon certainly has an irresistible life story. I mean, he he's the younger son of a famous crusader. He comes to England, successfully presses a very tenuous family claim to the earldom of Leicester. Then he marries the king's sister. He topples the king in revolution and falls in battle with the king's son. So that alone makes him worth the nine or so biographies that have been written about him to date. And surprisingly enough, Henry's story is also quite compelling. He's, he's nine years old when his father, King John, dies in 1216 in the midst of a rebellion. Henry's quickly crowned. But had that war been lost, he and his brother Richard surely would have been made to disappear. But they win, and Henry then goes through a rough minority, which uh, which in itself was such an important part of English history that whole books have been written about it. And uh, after that, Henry's reign is mostly noted for peace and prosperity. You know, nothing too exciting for those who, who love their kings to slaughter people and change their wives as often as they do their socks. But, uh, but Henry III was certainly not the weak fool that informed Cosmo. Stein's book. And unfortunately, I must say a lot of historic fiction I see out there. But that was my own understanding of Henry and Simon when I wrote my biography of de Montfort, which is why I gave it a heroic title, like with all, for all. But I had no plans to write about Henry at all until my, my editor suggested it. So 
that was when I really got to know the man and discovered that neither he nor Simon were true to the portraits of them painted by Victorian historians. So when the paperback version of my Simon biography was due to come out, I decided to completely rewrite it and present him in a more sobering light with even a new title. But uh, I don't think it has made a, a big impression at all because the latest biography of Simon again puts him on a pedestal, if you will. Yeah, um, I think Simon's overrated. <laughs> That's a personal opinion. I don't actually find him as, um, I don't see, having researched some of it, I don't see Simon de Montfort as the version that Sharon K. Penman portrayed him as. But I certainly think he's an interesting character. How much do you think Simon was responsible for the rise of the English nation, which is the subtitle now of the Simon biography, isn't it? Yes, uh, he deserves a lot of credit for it. Uh, most people tend to associate him with Parliament. And and certainly the two parliaments that met under his regime were groundbreaking in their scope. The first one established England as a constitutional monarchy, were completely radical in that age. And the second one brought the urban elite into the government for the first time. But these parliaments were part of the evolution of the parliamentary state that had been begun by Henry 30 years before these events. So if you want to credit the founding of parliament to a single individual, it would have to be Henry. And if, for example, to a particular year, then it would be 1236, because that's when Henry summoned the magnates of the realm, the barons, the clerks, judges, all to come to Westminster to codify a statute based on all the legal decisions that had come into force after he ascended the throne. So this is where you see Parliament acting for the first time as a legislative body. Simon was certainly a part of it. He's also present at the Parliament summoned by Henry throughout the 1240s. And indeed, he was one of the king's strongest supporters. But where we see his impact on history is not so much Parliament. It was the anti-foreigner propaganda that propelled him to power. This propaganda had been around since the beginning of Henry's reign. The English barons who had switched their allegiance to the French in the war against King John, they sought to oust John's foreign courtiers who had saved England for Henry and the Plantagenet. So now, 40 years later, Simon and his allies, they find this propaganda to be very useful when they launched their rebellion in 1263. And it should be remembered that Simon, although he was born and raised in France, he had inherited Leicester through his grandmother, who was English. And Simon himself learned to speak English later on. And in general, he was considered to be an Englishman uh, long before the war broke out against the monarchy. So anyway, after he seizes power, he sends out a summons to all the villages, forget your family, forget the harvest, muster in the south to repel a potential invasion. He warns them that an army of foreigners is thirsting for English blood. So the response was enormous. So we can see that under Simon de Montfort, England was once again a nation ready to defend itself from the design of, uh, of continental powers, because we're talking about a period of time which was almost 200 years to the date after the Norman conquest. So it seems that under Simon that this stigma of the conquest is finally dead. But that itself is quite misleading because it was actually Henry 
who ended the stigma by ratifying the Treaty of Paris with King Louis IX of France in 1259. And it should uh, be noted that it was the peace and security that Henry gave to England throughout his reign that kept it safe from invasion. Darren, you've just made a good case for Henry III being, if you like, the one who was perhaps driving is too strong a word, but but sort of moving England in a particular direction. Yet this is a king that that many English people today and, and even students of history are not at all familiar with. Yet he ruled for more than 50 years. So why is he so often overlooked, do you think? Probably because he has been frozen in time since the historians of the Victorian era set out to portray him in a, in a very unflattering light. See, these historians, they had an agenda, which was namely how to reclaim the history of democracy for England, which had been swiped by the French and Americans in their revolutions at the end of the 18th century. <laughs> so they looked around and, of course, Magna Carta under King John was the obvious starting point. And this led to Henry III and the provisions of Oxford, which more or less comprised the constitution that Henry, as king, enacted with his barons during the reform period that started in 1258. Now, this partnership between Henry and the barons was quite productive in the beginning. It was when Simon started throwing his weight around that things started to go sour. This ultimately led to war, to Simon dying a martyr's death on the battlefield, and that's all the Victorians needed to glorify this period as the great launch of democracy 500 years before those Frenchmen <laughs> ever got around to it. But this reform period we're talking about, it, it covers just a portion of Henry's reign, barely a fifth of it. And the rest of it tends to get neglected because, as I hinted before, it's the king. The kings who get idolized are the ones who leave a lot of corpses on the battlefield. <laughs> and Henry, he was nothing like that. He, he felt his primary duty was to give his people peace. He fed the poor. And he built uh, beautiful things like Westminster Abbey. The love he and his wife had for each other and their children, which stands so at odds with his grandparents, Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine, it's, <laughs> it's just one of the many endearing inhumane qualities that he had. And, and it's all of this that led me to subtitle my biography of him, The Great king england never knew it had <laughs> and <laughs> i i would venture to say that maybe the england of today that's going through the throes of dealing with its bloody past would have an easier time of it had there been more kings like him yeah i mean it, it's opening my eyes a bit because uh as i said to you earlier it's he's a king that i know very little about and and so i'm i'm as guilty as anyone of of ignoring this poor chap. So de Montfort's rebellion then, you've sort of already hinted strongly that that this was a this was a moment when things started to get uh, rather rougher for Henry. So was de Montfort primarily motivated by the national interest, by political issues, or, or was this a personal agenda that he had? Or was it both? Well, Simon is that rare character where we can say with justification that he was two halves of the same individual. Half of him 
was an idealist largely informed by his piety, and the other half, he was an ambitious opportunist with a large family to support. And he was able to master this improbable paradox thanks to two things that were unique to him as opposed to other English barons at the time. Now, the first was his connection to France, both as his ancestral homeland and also his friendship to to King Louis. So it was easy for him to defy Henry and get away with it because he always had this safe haven to, to go to for protection. And the second thing, probably more important, was this charisma he possessed. No other English baron in that century and very few beyond that had a knack for leadership the way he did. He was able to rally churchmen, freemen, urban dwellers, peasants, everybody under one banner. I mean, we don't find a single baron in the baron's war against King John who who even remotely compares to him in this, this aspect. So, I mean, to answer the question, it's both. It was both political and personal. Yeah, that that uh, that ability to to harvest support from different elements of medieval society, it may not be appreciated today how difficult that actually was. Simon is is largely considered to be the founder of English politics. I mean, he, his his following was essentially the first English political party. So we have him to blame for the party <laughs> politics of today. I like that. It's Simon de Montfort's fault. <laughs> Now, Simon and Henry were friends, first and foremost, weren't they? When Simon came over to England, Mm -hmm, Henry um, really took to him. Do you think he felt personally betrayed by Simon's actions? Definitely. But we, we have to understand that Henry, from the moment he ascended the throne, had known nothing but betrayal from his barons. 30 years before Simon launched his rebellion in 1263, Richard Marshall, the son of the William Marshall, he launched his own rebellion against Henry for really inane reasons. I mean, I mean, Richard had more or less blundered his way into it, but it proved to be a very destructive and humiliating episode for Henry. I mean, from that point on, he never trusted his barons again. He he began to dilute their power through foreign marriages. And he surrounded himself with men from humble backgrounds. These were men who were very able and very clever and who had no connection whatsoever to the ancestral nobility. But in Simon, as, as you say, Sharon, he, he probably saw someone who was above this clannish behavior of the, of the Anglo-Norman families. And, and so the two of them, who were about the same age, uh, they were both extremely pious individuals. They became the best of friends. Henry gave his sister to Simon in marriage. Everything was going swell. And then, and then uh, Henry found out that Simon had secretly named him as security for, for various loans he had taken out. So Henry was just, he was livid. And he, he ordered Simon thrown into the Tower of London. But the thing about Henry is he could never stay angry for long and and he eventually took Simon back into favor but Simon on the other hand to him pride was second nature and he never forgot it and and when Henry later put him on trial over his harsh rule in in Gascony 
That was it. Simon went into the reform period burning for revenge, and he saw it as his chance to pay Henry back. So how did their politics differ, or did they? Oh, they didn't in the least. <laughs> I mean, they, they were products of the feudal system, and they were happy to keep things that way. They both believed that they had to do right by the poor of the land, and in Henry's case, he made great strides in that direction. Now, it's often assumed that uh, in taking the barons into partnership to enact reforms that Henry surrendered power to them. That's, that's not the way either side saw it. I mean, the idea was that the representatives for the barons and the king would name a council of 15 members, and this council would be under Henry's lordship. Together, they would correct all the abuses of government officials. They would fix the king's financial situation, bring justice to the people, and so on. But the thing is, there was this cobble of barons, one of whom was Simon, and they used this moment to have Henry's Lusignan brothers expelled from the realm. It didn't have to go that far, but it, but it did. And because it did, it set the stage for Simon to promote the council as the supreme authority of the land. In this way, he could use the council, which was packed with his allies, to satisfy his claims for, for money and land that he felt Henry had always denied him. And he even went so far as to hold the peace treaty with France, which he himself had, had helped to negotiate. He held it hostage for his claims. I mean, for Henry, it was the most egregious treachery imaginable. And relations between the two men, they, they were sunk for good after that. Yeah, I mean, Simon was a bit of a populist, really, wasn't he, um, in his in his politics? Completely. Trying to, put, as you said earlier, put together a, a kind of a coalition of people from different ranks in society. Well, he, he was able to do that because, one, he was, he was very good with sound bites, <laughs> and these were repeated by friars and the clergy who were on his side because they were against the king and the pope for you know issues of, of provisions and, and the power of the church and so forth. And so these friars would spread Simon's sound bites throughout the country. And this is how he, he helped to gain in popularity. Yes. And again, I suppose we always have to remember that uh, social media and the Internet is a, is a relatively recent thing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, in those days, you had friars, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, they got around, didn't they? they did, yeah. <laughs> well, before that, there were the there were there were the troubadours in France, you know, so really it's the, the same medium. Yeah. I mean, something else just occurred to me, actually. Um, that about the whole situation between the king and the barons is the significance of the loss of Normandy, which meant that the Anglo-Norman barons, who perhaps held lands in both places, they had to make some decisions, didn't they, about where their political allegiances lay and how that affected their whole lives. Well, that had been mostly settled before Henry came to the throne. And in fact, he had this this huge store of land from French barons who who had to declare for, yeah. for Philip. And he, he used it as patronage. Probably, I would say, the last Anglo-Norman baron who who held lands on both was, was Richard Marshall. 
Right. And his rebellion was such an idiotic affair because not only does he die in it, but his family, the marshals, they lose the last bit of land they held in France on account of it. It was Yeah. So obviously Simon de Montfort in the end takes on the king and, and from the sound of what you've said, uh that that he's seeking vengeance, that he that he feels he's got a, a case against the king. It comes to fighting. It comes to, to two battles in particular, I suppose. Why in the end did he lose that that military struggle? In fact, he almost didn't. <laughs> I mean, uh, he he won the Battle of Lewis against the odds, but that was mostly because uh, Henry's son, the Lord Edward, the famed warrior king later on, I mean, he he just blundered that battle completely, both before and after <laughs> it, and it really cost his father the victory. But okay, Simon won. He's, he's got the family in his grasp, but the queen was on the continent at the time, and so she's putting together this invasion for So now he's got to see off this invasion, you know, the, the rise of the English nation. And uh, that invasion never occurs, and, and this allows Simon to begin consolidating his power principally around his family and his his sons are grown up at this time and he he puts them in charge of these major lordships and at the parliament he's famous for the one they say is where democracy was founded well there was there was only one item on the agenda at that parliament namely to force edward as a hostage of simon's regime to swap his lordship of Chester for a bunch of scattered manors that were held by Simon's eldest son, Henry de Montfort. The idea here was for young Henry and their ally, Llewellyn of Wales, to keep the west of England secure from the marcher barons of that of that region who were totally loyal to Edward. And so Simon, he he wins his victory at Lewis. He he has help from Gilbert de Clare, the the Earl of Gloucester. But afterwards, Gilbert felt that Simon, who was 35 years older than him, that Simon was hogging all the glory and the riches. And so he went back to Gloucester to, to salt. Simon marched west to deal with him. But little did he realize that the queen and Eleanor, she was a shrewd one. She <laughs> she and the marcher barons drew Gilbert into a little conspiracy and Essentially, Simon was marching into a trap, and that trap closed when they organized Edward's escape. But, and it has to be noted, the writing wasn't necessarily on the wall, because had Llewellyn provided more support, and had the younger Simon de Montfort moved with greater speed and precaution, it could have easily gone the other way. I mean, we're talking about just a matter of hours here for the whole thing to swing the other way. This is the the battle of uh, I've forgotten the name of Evesham, yeah, Evesham, yes. And I mean, isn't this very often the case with medieval battles that timing, numbers, and numbers are much smaller than people these days imagine, and it all seems so definite when it's written in the history book. But yeah. at the time, these things turn on all sorts of factors: the weather. You know, it, it could be anything. So uh, he he comes to a bit of a sticky end at that battle, doesn't he? Oh, completely, yeah. yeah. Is that that's a measure, presumably, of the hostility, the huge hostility against him from those who've trapped him? You can you can 
imagine that um, these troubles had been going on for at least five years now. And, and coinciding with it was this great famine. And so, and, and there were also uh, problems with, um, with Wales and Scotland. And there were a lot of pressures on the realm. It, it wasn't a quiet time at all. No. So you might see Evesham as as the point where it all comes to a climax and everyone is just letting it all out. And, and you know, Simon is killed and they see his body and it's, oh, my God, that's him. That's Simon de Montfort. So they just had at it. Yes. It's also an indication, um, probably an early indication of what, what Edward was going to be like as a king, because he set up a group of people literally to hunt down Simon during the battle and kill him, didn't he? And then his body was dismembered, his foot sent somewhere. <laughs> yes, uh, well, his, his his head was was made a present to uh, Roger de Mortimer's wife um, and his testicles too while we're at it. But I, I don't think Edward w- could have approved of the mutilation of his body. He, he did want Simon dead. I mean, this clearly was uh, the only way out of this mess. And and this is why Simon, after the trap had been sprung, this is why he never let Henry go, because Henry was his only legitimacy. I mean, there, um, he had nothing else to underpin his, his power except the king. So he basically dragged Henry around in, in South Wales and up to the battle. He even put him in armor to fight with them. One chronicler says well they they wanted the king to die in battle with them but i i think it was just the fact that simon knew if he loses henry that's it you know it's up it's the end of his regime you have to really admire henry here because you know here he's in ordinary armor there's this raging thunderstorm ahead there's all this mayhem going on and he's almost 60 years old and so you can sort of imagine him like King Larry's, you know, and he's telling the guys who are trying to save him, "Hey, I'm your king. Don't kill me. What are you crazy?" You know. Yeah, it's it's a it's a kind of uh, historical constant when it comes to prominent barons taking on royal authority. That at the end of the day, as you've just said about Simon, the same is true of the Earl of Warwick later and others. That while they have possession of the king, they have legitimacy. They have a, a authority. But if they don't have possession of the king, then they're rebels, they're traitors. And it sort of defines the period, really, because royal authority is what there is. Now, a rather controversial subject about Simon is his treatment of the Jews. And this is obviously part of a a bigger medieval issue about the Jews. Uh, What can you tell us about um, Simon's actions against the Jews and how that fits in with the rest of what he was about? Well, I mean, it, it was definitely a, a major issue, uh, especially for Henry. I mean, Henry, he was, I think, the only monarch to to set up a conversion home for Jews who wanted to convert to Christianity. And again, this was his motivation was his piety. And the same as Simon, uh, both were extremely pious individuals. And, and in that day, they were encouraged to see the Jews as as heretics. And so Henry, you know, he wants to convert them, he hopes, but also he he enacts ruinous taxation against their community because he, he needed their money. But other than where crusading 
propaganda was concerned, he he never acted on the clergy's calls against uh, integration and fraternization between the religions. With Simon, we we know that uh, you know he's he's the child of very very devout crusaders. This was part of the Albigensian Crusade that happened in in southern France in the early part of the 13th century. And Simon, uh, he grew up. Part of his 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 childhood was spent in Toulouse after his father was named the Count of Toulouse. And during that time, his mother Alice she undertook the forced baptism of Jewish children there, which, by the way, was something his father wasn't too happy with. So, so Simon is growing up throughout his life with this very militaristic attitude about crusading and and so forth and. And one of the first acts that he carries out in England was to expel the Jewish families that lived in his half of Leicester. Now, these families, they, they promptly moved to the other half of Leicester, which was controlled by his, his great-aunt Margaret. Why that was one of his first acts, it could have been, let's say, the gesture of a new lord to his people of Leicester. But also, his mentor at this time was Bishop Grossetest, and uh he was probably the most profound religious thinker of that age. And Grosstest, he he wanted the Jews to give up their money lending practices and just go out into the world and, and earn their keep with their hands. But it was it was always a case, unfortunately, that whenever law and order broke down, the Jewish communities always suffered. And this, of course, was the case after Simon launched his war against Henry. The London massacre of the Jewish community in 1264 by Montfortian partisans. This was particularly ghastly. But in the interest of disclosure, we should note that it was during Simon's regime, which lasted about 15 months, that five orders were issued from the chancery to protect various Jewish communities. I mean, it's one of those timeless things we see throughout history. When you're out of power, attack. When you're in power, protect. There's never there's never a simple answer really to, to things, is there? Well, I mean, you know, Simon himself and his wife they were borrowing money from the Jews in the 1240s. So, I mean, it's it, it, yes, it's a very complicated relationship for the most part. But as as I said, when law and order broke down, that's when things got really bad. Mm, it's a very difficult subject to talk about because it's trying to get the balance right with that one. Um, you've also written, speaking of getting the balance right, you've also written a dual biography of Henry and Simon's wives, the two Eleanors, Eleanor of Provence and Eleanor of England, which is an excellent book. And I do highly recommend everyone reads it. It's a just a vision into the fact these two women, of course, the women behind the husbands. So how much influence did these two women have on their husbands? Oh, I thank you for that <laughs> assessment. But and, and as I say in the introduction, people who read that book, they, they should always see that whatever Simon and Henry are doing, they should always see the wife somewhere close by or next to them. These guys are not making these decisions without consulting their wives. I mean, this <laughs> this was just par for the course. So, uh, so yes, the influence they had was, was great. And um, I I always find it interesting that if a person talks about an English queen named Eleanor, the usual response is, oh, yes, Eleanor of Aquitaine, my favorite. And uh, sometimes maybe Eleanor of Castile. No one ever mentions Eleanor of Provence. And it's 
absolutely baffling because those other two Eleanors, they never exerted the power and influence the way Eleanor Provence did. Just an example throughout uh, the time she was queen, which was 36 years. She was five months pregnant when Henry named her his regent while he went to Gascony to, uh, to clean up the mess that Simon had created down there. And it was in this capacity that she summoned Parliament, the first woman to summon Parliament and the first woman to be a part of that vaunted institution, we could say. And it was during her regency also that Parliament for the first time, included representatives who were elected locally. I mean, this means that the first parliament to meet with a democratic mandate met under her summons. So her parliament was just as innovative as Simon's, and uh, and she did it nine years before he got his chance. But more to uh, to the troubles later on, she she was a force to be reckoned with during the Montfortian Wars. I mean, uh, the historians of that time, all of whom were churchmen, they denounced her as the cause of all the trouble. Because we we should not just remember, but first we should learn that that Simon's greatest support did not come from the barons. This this whole idea of a of a second barons war this, this was another Victorian invention. It, it never happened. Simon's greatest support came from clergymen. And it was their propaganda that said that Simon wasn't rebelling against the king. No, he was merely rescuing the king from evil advisors like his wife, who, by the way, is a foreigner. (laughs) And this was unfortunate for Simon because during the first uh, part of the war, let's say, Eleanor was stoned by the mob at London Bridge. And that incident alone destroyed all the tacit support that Simon had previously enjoyed from his, uh, his friends in France, and particularly uh, King Louis. Yeah, because Eleanor was the sister of Louis' wife. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I mean, Eleanor's sister was Queen of France, too. And, and also, this incident, well, the whole troubles, destroyed what had been a wonderful friendship between the Queen and her sister-in-law, Eleanor de Montfort. This Eleanor, she she was about six years older than the queen, and she probably acted as her mentor after the young younger Eleanor arrived in England in uh, in 1236 to marry Henry. I mean, these two women they they shared a lot in common. Their children grew up together as cousins, and both of them did their best to reconcile their husbands before things you know started spiraling out of control. But once it became war, there was no going back, and and Eleanor de Montfort was very active in her husband's regime, mainly serving as uh, as an ambassador to their supporters. And But she always remained very mindful that Henry was her brother and that both of them had a brother in Richard of Cornwall, who, who was also imprisoned by Simon. And Eleanor made sure that Richard and his sons, all the royal prisoners, had the comforts that, you know, afforded their status. And... After Simon's grisly end at, at Evesham, she chose exile for her for her and her surviving children. But Richard and the Queen continued to uh, to represent her her interests in England. Yeah, it must have been very difficult for both sides. They were all family after all. It must have been really hard situation for them all to deal with for Eleanor to stay supportive of Simon when it's her brother he's fighting against. 
Yeah, I mean, it, you're right. It's a family affair. I mean, but, you know, we've seen this throughout history. I mean, look at, uh, you know, Henry II, his sons, his wives, all this family going at it. Yeah, you can't trust your family. <laughs> Certainly if you're, a, if you're a medieval monarch. <laughs> well, I mean, this was a case I always made for Henry that by not taking mistresses and siring illegitimate children, this actually contributes to the stability of the realm. I mean, he and his wife and their children, they were absolutely loyal to each other. And this, this was very, um, I mean... For people who could remember what it was like before and, of course, what would happen later on during the Wars of the Roses. I mean, when when a family splits apart uh, under such aggressive circumstances, it's, it's really bad for the realm. Yeah, definitely. So speaking of family, now, Henry and Simon both had very interesting examples in their fathers. I do remember, I think, was it William Marshall warned 10-year-old Henry or 11-year-old Henry, when he was dying, not to, to emulate a certain ancestor of his. Yeah, but that was that was the the biographer William William Marshall. I mean, he had a, he had his own agenda at work there. Do you think they inherited legacies um, from their fathers that actually informed their actions, or do you think that Henry totally ignored everything? Henry was 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 very different from his father i mean john was always on the move he was always whipping up a storm in front of him henry he liked to stay home he liked to to please people uh john liked to go out and hunt henry liked to decorate <laughs> you know um <clears throat> john hounded his barons for their debts they owed to the crown henry almost always forgave them but I think what uh, what they shared in common, Henry and, and his father, was was a devotion to their children. I mean, John was an extremely devoted parent, and some of the letters he he writes concerning his children are, are very touching in their their own regard. And and also Henry remained devoted to his parents. He he had John moved to that splendid tomb we see in in Worcester today. He had masses said for his soul. But where John's legacy is concerned, that was perhaps a bit more problematic because the loss of Normandy and the other continental lands, this led Henry to embark on a quest of almost 30 years, um, you know, to, to try and get them back. And if not get them back, then at least reach a favorable settlement with the French, which he, he succeeded in doing in the end. Simon, on the other hand, he was very much like his father. Both were natural warriors and leaders, supremely brave, always ready to rescue their men no matter what the situation. Neither had any tolerance for those who, who fell away from the faith. Simon de Montfort the Crusader, he, he was the most famous soldier of his era. I mean, his, his victories against the odds certainly inspired his son to take on the king at Lewis in 1264. So the younger Simon knew he had a lot to live up to and you know, he knew his father had died a martyr's death and, and had been mourned all across Europe. So there are these two giants over the course of the, the period of Henry's reign. Do you tend to favor one or the other? Do you have more admiration for one or the other? Well, for so much of my interest in medieval history, Simon had always 
been the one, the heroic one. Um, now, having separated the historical figure from the fictional character created by the Victorians, I, I can say the, the fascination is still there. He was one of those types of leaders who carried all before him. Maybe not for the best of reasons, but you, you really have to admire the man for his talent and commitment because everyone just uh, fell by the wayside <laughs> when, when he uh, strode forward. And with Henry, that for me was a complete epiphany. But once I got to really know him, the admiration was overwhelming. Not just for the value he esteemed, the ones I, I've already mentioned here, um, even though these values are something we as a modern audience can easily appreciate, but also because Henry was very much at the forefront of his times. He, he was always looking for a way to restore Plantagenet honor and glory. Unfortunately, as, as we said here, his efforts have rarely been acknowledged. I mean, most people don't even know that the Westminster Abbey they admire so much is his creation, the, the beautiful transepts, the tracery, the indescribably magnificent floor in front of the high altar. I mean, it was his plan to put England on display before the world for royal funerals, royal weddings, and now coming up for coronations. And in that, he succeeded brilliantly. Yeah, he did, because it's only, it's from him onwards that the royals are buried in Westminster Abbey. Um, other than Edward the Confessor, I don't think there's a king before him buried there, is there? All uh, right. Well, you know, he <laughs> he tore down Edward's church, you know, so he sort of translated him out of there and put him into the new new shrine that he constructed for him behind the altar. Well, I must admit, um, it's been very illuminating talking to you about it, or rather having you talk to us, because uh, you've lifted the scales from my eyes about Henry III. He's my hero now. There you go. The <laughs> book is still on sale. Go out. Well, <laughs> grab yourself a copy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's a very good read. And and I urge listeners to do that. Yes. Well, I, uh, as Sharon mentioned, I, I my latest was about Henry's brother, Richard of Cornwall. And again, there's this Victorian invention that if only Richard had been born first, England would have been, oh, it's all complete nonsense. But Richard had an extremely interesting life. I mean, he was, I, I, I would wager he was probably the most well, well-traveled uh, person of his age. I mean, he was everywhere. <laughs> and of course, he was the only English king of Germany. Great honor, isn't it? He's an interesting character, and I do like the idea that, no, he wouldn't have been a better king than Henry III, because I'm the same as you, Darren. I've heard that all through um, my study of history, that if only Richard had been born first, it would have changed everything. But I think you're right, reading about Richard. If Richard had been born first, then the, the Bank of England would have been his first priority. <laughs> well, thank you very much for a fascinating discussion, Darren. You were definitely the right person to get on to talk about Henry III and Simon de Montfort. I knew you'd be enlightening. <laughs> well, it was, was a pleasure. Always happy to do it. And I you know, hope, uh, you know, we, we come to a, a new understanding about these characters. You, you know, again, as we always mentioned, it, it's not so much about good or bad or black and white, but just that, you know, they had fascinating lives. And Absolutely. That in itself, the story, the, the life stories of Simon and Henry are, are of themselves quite worth the time and interest. 
I've said this before to Derek, the Victorians have an awful lot to answer for in the way they um, presented history. <laughs> well, you're talking to somebody who writes about the Wars of the Roses. Well, the Victorians are pretty much trashed that period. They, they were of their time. Thank you very much for joining us, Darren. All right. Thank you for having me. And join us next time. Derek and I are going to be looking into William Rufus. Neither of us know much about him, so we're off to um, do our research so that we can um, present an interesting discussion on William Rufus next time. Thank you very much for listening again today. And I'm Sharon Bennett Connolly. I'm Derek Burks, and we look forward to the next podcast with you.